Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Jeanette Nyden. Jeanette is a contracts and negotiation expert who regularly uses her skills to bolster those of buy and sell side contract professionals. She specializes in performance-based and outcome-based customer supplier relationships, and she has written four books on the subject. So we have the right person with us today to talk about this. Hi, Jeanette. How are you? Hi, Kelly. I'm great. How are you doing today? I am doing just fine. Welcome to The Sourcing Hero. Um, So I gave a very high-level overview of what your expertise is based on, but can you share a little bit more detail about your background and professional experience? Absolutely. I am trained and licensed as an attorney in the United States, specifically in the state of Washington. I no longer practice law in a traditional way. I now support uh, sourcing departments and sales departments in developing uh, contracts. So I do the drafting, negotiating, and sometimes uh, consult on the post-contract management. So all three phases of the contract life cycle. And because I'm a lawyer, I bring a really great skill set. So when I talk to lawyers and I just spoke to an external counsel and a sourcing expert on Wednesday, right, I know how to speak legal. Mm. And so sometimes uh, that woman and I have a quick shortcut conversation because I understand and I can use the legal terms. And then at the same time, I understand business. And so when the sourcing person said, you know, we about developing a business case and justification, you know, the lawyer doesn't know what we're talking about. And I can switch my hat and I can start talking with the sourcing person about how to capture that information for the statement of work. I think that's so incredibly critical. You know, I can... We can joke procurement gets a hard time a lot for using either terminology or acronyms that that nobody understands. But there are sort of these functionally based translation exercises, truthfully, you know, that hopefully the language of the business ends up becoming the standard language that we all translate into. And I think we're going to get an opportunity to sort of pull together the legal and procurement sides of, of a discussion today focused around the one big topic everybody is talking about right now, which is inflation, right? No news story, no business journal, nobody isn't talking about inflation right now. And so let's take that and then bring in your perspective on fixed fee agreements. If you can start hopefully in business language, because I certainly don't speak legal. Um, If you can start by providing us with an explanation of what fixed fee agreements are, and then give us a little bit of insight into why it is so important for us to understand them, given the inflationary environment that we're working in today. 
Yeah, this is a great topic. Fixed fee agreements are contracts between customers and suppliers that say that the supplier will provide a good or a service for an exact price, not less than, not more than. And so put a pin on that for everyone who's thinking about rebates and credits mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. I'll get to that when we start talking about how to make fixed fee agreements economically more efficient. So a fixed fee agreement is literally, I'm going to buy this service for you. I'm going to pay you $1,000, period. I get the service. It meets my needs. I give you $1,000. We're done. The reason that fixed fee agreements are so popular with what I will say unsophisticated members of the line of business is because they need a budget number. I have $1,000 uh -huh. to hire Kelly. I need Kelly to record a bunch of podcasts for my company. She records the podcasts. I get the podcasts. She gets the $1,000. That's really low, folks. I'm just making this up. And <laughs> we're all happy. And I only have a budget for $1,000. So I got what I wanted. So it's sort of like shopping out a convenience store or a big box store, right? I just pick what I need off the shelf. If it's not there, it's not there. If it's too much, I can walk away, go to another store. Uh, but it's very much an illusion. And it really hits home what an illusion a fixed fee agreement is when you have force majeure events like a pandemic or a war in Eastern Europe and inflation and tensions between uh, nations, then we realize, oh, this is all just an illusion. Yeah, We've been fooling ourselves because our suppliers are not actually charities and they are not meant to lose money. And if they are traded on the stock exchange, they're actually judged by making money. So now you've got a customer that's judged and wants to make money for its shareholders. And then you've got a supplier that's judged and wants to make money for its shareholders. And there, all these analysts are looking at how our customers and suppliers are performing, even in a privately owned company, you still have the owners that are, you know, making these judgments, are we making enough money? And so if a fixed fee agreement meets with any kind of resistance in the form of a force majeure event, supply chain issues in inflation, then we realize how inefficient mm -hmm. a fixed fee agreement is. Well, it certainly doesn't sound like they're particularly good at flexing with real life. And it's funny because if, let's say, two and a half years ago or three years ago, we had said, you know, what if, for instance, you had a pandemic and a war in Eastern Europe and skyrocketing inflation all at the same time, people would probably say, oh, Jeanette, that example is just ridiculous. That would never happen. And yet here we are, right? So agreements that we put in place in a sunnier time may really be getting stretched by the very real circumstances that we're living through right now. That's correct. And then they'll break. Yes. Right? So they be, they stretch and suppliers do what they can, customers do what they can. But if we don't build into our contracts, methods and mechanisms to be able to renegotiate the contract in these kinds of severe environments, then we cause ourselves a lot of angst. And we see this in the supply chain. So lawyers are saying on the one hand in my head, right? Like, you know, 
I don't want to obligate a customer to make changes. Suppliers are going to come and ask changes and blah, blah, blah. And they own the risk. That's why we're hiring them to do it. Kelly's got to figure out the podcasts. You know, if her server's in Eastern Europe and it's being bombed, it's her job to find a redundancy. And if that costs more money and then she has to pass it along. If we can't afford it, we'll just find someone else who can and ask for the redundancy. And all that's like theoretically like watching a movie, yeah. right? The reality is on the line of business side is that we live in a really complex, interdependent, global supply chain. And as a result, we have to start thinking in more contractually mature terms. And by that, I mean, we do have to sit down and say, if we want Kelly to have a redundancy because she's got operations in Eastern Europe and they're bombed and the people are no longer living there, let alone working there, what's the backup plan? That costs us money. And we have to be willing to accept that fact. And we're not there as a business community yet that we do have to, in fact, pay for some of the things that back us up the yes. risks in pandemics, wars, supply chain deficiencies, and the rest. Now, the reality of this, because it's interesting when we think about, uh, when we think about specific contracts, I know for me mentally, instantly into my mind pops this picture of a really long, verbose document, most of which is standardized based on somebody's, you know, paper that they prefer to use. Most of it's not really going to change. But when the rubber hits the road from procurement's perspective, some of the specific clauses are actually where we can start to affect some of this change. Absolutely. That's a really great point. And the thing of it is, is you're right. You know, contract goes in the drawer. Nobody understands it unless you're a lawyer. However, um, in what I call compensation clauses, wherever that looks like for you, payment clauses, you know, compensation is just a big fancy word, invoicing, wherever that is, you can start to build in uh, certain things that give a supplier a right of economic adjustment. So I want to talk about that for a second, because I've got a couple bullets here from my fourth book, The Contract Professionals Playbook, that I really want to highlight, because the the book is meant to open it up, grab the info and go. And that's exactly what I'm doing in this podcast. So the first thing you want to think about is you can add a ceiling clause. And the ceiling clause means there is a trigger so that when inflation, based on some neutral index that both parties can agree on, when that inflation hits the trigger, then you can come back together and negotiate what that cost is going to be to the customer and to the supplier. And it's based on should cost analysis. So you're going to pay for the inflationary item. So if the item has gone up by five or 8%, then that item cost pass through as a surcharge or something, you pay for that extra five or 8% as a customer, for example, but you don't pay an additional five or 8% on overhead marketing, um, profit on services, right? Yeah. You ring fence it. And that's the part where people don't understand. Like we just ring fence it and then it becomes 
manageable. So when the trigger hits, we see it in the index, we come back, we figure out what the surcharge is, and you agree before you even enter into the contract in an ideal world that this is how we're going to handle these kinds of situations. So the suppliers can't make up their loss of profitability for other customers based on your back. The second thing is you need to have clauses for periodic review and calculation. So you have to start thinking about um, increasing your communication with suppliers to a you know quarterly, monthly, every other week or weekly basis, depending on what that item is, so that as the index fluctuates, you understand how the costs are going to impact your own business or the supplier. And you can start making strategic decisions rather than having the market tell you how you're going to operate your business. The third thing you need to do is you need to add a floor clause. That means when inflation is short term, then, you know, two, six, maybe 12 months, it's a blip, then the costs or that surcharge do not exist anymore. So if we did a 25 cent per mile surcharge because of the cost of gasoline going up in a fixed fee transportation agreement, that 25 cents or 50 cents per mile is ring fenced as long as gas is at a certain price point. When gas based on some index reduces down below a certain trigger point, the surcharge goes away. Full stop. Yeah. And, and because, you know, just as we were saying, we might have never expected the conditions that we're in now to have existed, especially not in combination. It's equally unrealistic to think that the things we're dealing with in combination right now are also all going to exist forever. And so we're trying to put in, actually, it's interesting, Jeanette, while you were talking, I was thinking to myself, okay, this is how we operationalize resilience. Because I was thinking to myself, this is how we need to make sure that if in fact things legitimately change, it's much better for there to be a provision set out for suppliers to temporarily alter the terms of an agreement than it is for them to say, guess what, guys, I know you were thrilled when you put this agreement in place, but we're going to exercise our exit clause and you are now officially hosed for the product or service that we provide. That is not resilience, right? But we also live in the real world. And so we need to protect our company against great example you gave suppliers that are trying to make up for losses on other agreements by changing the terms to our own. These are places where we can take that contract out of the drawer and it can actually start to work for us in the complicated situation that we face today. Yeah, let's talk about two different scenarios. Um, because the first scenario is the most painful scenario, and that's we've got an existing contract. So remind me to talk about what to do if you're going to go into a new contract. But let's start first with the existing contract to follow on your example. Exit clauses, termination for convenience, termination for cause or you know material change, force majeure um, exit because you know our operations are cease to operate in Eastern Europe or whatever the case may be, right? So we've we've got to understand how do companies exit relationships and more importantly, what's going to be the cost? So if a supplier becomes financially unstable or they trigger a force majeure clause, 
that, you're right, really hoses the customer's operations. Unless they've got more than one egg in that basket and they can very quickly move their goods or services to another supplier, which is increasingly challenging in a strained supply chain environment, you don't actually, as a customer, have all the leverage. And I just spoke to a senior leader in procurement yesterday and had to have a very difficult 30-minute call and just say, your organization does not have the leverage you think it has. Like, the world has changed. Um, and in that situation, you need to look at other clauses in your agreement. Do you have the ability to modify the agreement? And it could just be in the miscellaneous section, the part nobody reads, but there can be a modification clause there. And sometimes lawyers who don't understand anything about how contracts are actually managed will just simply say, this contract can be modified as long as both parties agree to the modification in writing. It's approved by all the appropriate representatives of each agreement, meaning it's not you and me, Kelly, it's the you know, um, CPO, uh, chief sales officer, whoever has the authority to bind the agreement. And it's dated and it's attached to the contract. So it can be much simpler than what we think it is to go and negotiate. What are we going to do about this? If you don't already have a clause for triggers and or ceilings and floors and things like that, you can potentially, but not in government contracts, just negotiate an amendment, follow all the rules and then electronically staple it to the mm. <laughs> to the agreement and you can modify it, you know? Now, how about for new contracts? Right. For a new contract, that's really where you need to understand how to develop a fixed fee agreement with the right of economic adjustment. Those are your clauses for ceilings and floors and indices. And then you also have to understand how to include an incentive. So if we're looking at $5 a gallon or more in gasoline, and that's not a short term, that's a long term, and it's going to dramatically impact all of our businesses and our personal lives, then the incentive, so you have a fixed fee agreement, right of economic adjustment, and with an incentive. What the incentive does then in a new contract is it encourages your transportation and your logistics provider to be more fuel efficient. And by being more fuel efficient, then you would save money if there's a surcharge for the economic adjustment. So for example, the last time this happened to us, I was consulting with a logistics company. It's a trucking company for a industrial bakery. So not just a mom and pop, like they're the bread deliverers to, you know, the East coast. Um, and Trucking is very expensive on the East Coast. People get stuck in traffic jams and bridges and tunnels and all these sorts of things. And by coming together for a two-day workshop, you could really start to see some areas. And my uh, favorite chief financial officer called them fingers and toes because they're little. They're not <laughs> huge. They're not arms and legs and torsos. But we looked for ways to prevent idling. We looked for ways to shift operations to get the trucks out. 30 minutes earlier in the morning, which meant the customer's operations had to shift as well. But we were willing to do that to get the efficiency. Um, we also invested, again, this was a while ago, but we invested in certain types of GPS software that would um, be able to balance rerouting 
versus staying through, but like being able to analyze it for efficiency. So we automatically reroute. Well, we do it now on our phones for GPS, but at this point in time, that was a pretty new technology for the trucking industry. And so we want to be able to use these sorts of technologies as an incentive so that if I'm going to pay you 50 cents more for get the gasoline sur surcharge, can't say that fast, <laughs> I want you to not burn gas sitting in traffic going from New Jersey to New York, right? Like, how can we figure this out where we don't idle for an hour and a half waiting to unload or you don't idle for 45 minutes waiting to load? How do we do this? And those are the kinds of conversations for new agreements. Now, Kelly, you can do this as part of an existing agreement through your modification process and provision as well. You can add these clauses in, you can add economic adjustment, you can add an incentive to be more fuel efficient, for example, as part of your modification. It's just more nerve wracking yeah. when you're doing it after the fact and you're in crisis rather than in a proactive way. Right. Now, since we've been talking about how to connect sort of the business considerations with the legal options, let me ask you one sort of scenario-based question. If you do have a supplier with a fixed fee contract today, and they come to you for any reason and say, we need to change the all of the prices, some of the prices in this agreement, how does procurement, with the business's input, of course, look at all of the different clauses and options for accommodating that that are available to them and figure out which path forward is the right one to take. Yes, you really do need to do the analysis and you need to have someone who's a contract professional and or someone in your legal department do that analysis. And it starts with what uh, are our rights? So what is the customer's rights and the supplier's rights to modify the agreement. If there are no rights to modification, then you need to look at your force majeure clause. All contracts are, you know, I would say in my experience in where I operate, they have force majeure clauses. You need to look at those and read them to see if this triggers something, you know, does this trigger an adjustment? Does this trigger um, a change in a obligation from one party to the other. If you don't really have a force majeure clause, and if you don't really have any kind of a modification clause, and your supplier is bleeding red dollars from this account, then you really need to sit down and determine if you want to terminate for the convenience of the parties and try to renegotiate something with someone else. If you want to be really hard-nosed about it and say, I'm not willing to terminate for convenience and we have no force majeure clauses and things like that, the supplier got into this agreement a year ago, you know, tough luck, please be aware that you are setting yourself up for failure. You're driving 65 miles an hour at a brick wall. You just don't know where the brick wall is, but it's there. Because we have seen and documented for 20 years situations, particularly in industries like the auto industry, where they thought they had all the power and they crippled their suppliers and then voila, a supplier goes bankrupt and the auto industry has to go in and acquire a bankrupt, limp, inefficient, undercapitalized supplier to provide them 
whatever the parts were. And I've seen this in my clients in aerospace as well with legacy parts in aerospace. If you really want to do that to yourself where you're now the happy owner of a broken business, then so be it. But you can't think like that in the long term. In the long term, you have to be able to sit down and you have to business case and you have to should cost analysis, uh, analyze And you have to be able to close the door, get the right people in the room, and have an honest off-the-record conversation. So I'm a mediator. I was a mediator as a lawyer. I went through all the mediation training and and bring a lot of my mediation training and skills to my negotiation work. And in mediation, you just shut the door and you say, listen, no matter what is said in the room, it's private. It'll stay confidential. And it's not going to go outside this room. And if you have to have people sign the document as part of a non-disclosure agreement, I wholly support that. And then you can have honest conversations. But if the supplier thinks that you, they're going to say something that then goes to the chief procurement officer that's going to be used against them, like in a bad divorce on TV, they're not going to be honest with you about right. what is happening to them. And then hence the brick wall shows up at 65 miles an hour on a Tuesday morning when they file for bankruptcy in their federal district court. Well, and it's interesting having you on here, Jeanette, given that, you know, certainly you understand the world of sourcing, procurement, contract management, but you do come to this with a different perspective based on your, your training and where you've been focusing in terms of building out your expertise. And so I'm going to be interested to hear your response to this question, which is one that I ask everyone who joins me here on The Sourcing Hero. And that is either, and I always give people the choice, what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or another way to look at it, what do you think heroism looks like in a business context? Yeah, so it's the heroism. And it's exactly what I just said, which is you have to challenge the status quo by bringing strategic thinking to work. Things that were true 20 years ago when you were filling out purchase orders, etc., is just not true today. The procurement and contract professional's job is has changed. And I am super fortunate to be an external support to my clients because I can challenge the status quo. I can't have that 30-minute awkward conversation. You don't have the leverage you think you have. Let's come at this in a different approach. And if you folks listening to this podcast hear anything from what I said, this is thought leadership. This is being a hero. Bring it back into your organization and make some changes now that will hopefully make things a little bit smoother as we go forward, because I think it's going to be a couple of interesting months ahead of us. Well, and to that point, if people have heard something today that they would like to bring back to their organization, what is the best way for people to either connect with you or learn about or leverage some of the other resources that you have available? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So I have a website, obviously. It's jnyden.com. Uh, You can also look me up in LinkedIn and Jeanette Niden. I'm always talking to folks through messaging and LinkedIn. Um, I also happen to have a Twitter account and a YouTube account. Um, So, you know, look at my website for free resources. Look at LinkedIn. I've got resources and posts and things like that. And just start a conversation with me. Even if you've got a super simple question, I love answering questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. 
Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for The Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.